Oh, we may have a few more join us over the next minute or so. Uh, but we're at the uh, final session of the day. And I just want to say thanks again for all the panelists, discussants, the moderators. I think it's been a wonderful uh, day. Uh, and we, we get the chance to have a little capstone um, for about a half an hour conversation uh, between Ed Ayers and David Blight. And so I'm gonna, gonna turn it over to Ed. Thanks so much, Stan. I feel really uh, fortunate to be a part of this today. And uh, I've been taking notes frantically all day long. I've learned so much. Um, you know, in fact, this wonderful symposium reads me of a judgment I read somewhere. Perhaps people will remember where I got this. Frederick Douglass is an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is getting recognized more and more. Uh, and it does seem that we are living in a golden age of Douglass engagement and appreciation and elaboration. And one result of today's conversation is to make David's accomplishment even more impressive. I made the mistake of having the book here next to me. And so it's kind of even more imposing physically. As we acknowledge the remarkable complexity of Douglas's life and work and to think about David sort of wrapping his mind around all of that, it's, it's remarkable. So I want to sketch uh, a, briefly a theme I heard today and then ask David a question that will lead into his own remarks with which he'll wrap up today. So here's what struck me today. Douglas exposed himself to many interpretations by his constant outpouring of words, each of which was situated in and shaded by particular crises. He basically goes from one crisis to the next. He has to kind of solve that problem and then say something of enduring consequence. It's amazing. And yet what struck me is that the speakers today presented with purported turning points or changes or inconsistencies found instead deep structures and continuities in Frederick Douglass's thought and words. Over and over again, people pointed to these seeming ruptures or inconsistencies and then said, yes, I know, but look at what unified them. And so we heard lots of uh, striking phrases today, helpful ways to understand that complexity. Uh, David kicked us off last night by saying that Douglas is a principled pragmatist. We heard a lot of that today. Other speakers use other great phrases that Douglas repeatedly divides his voice. Thought that was a great phrase. Uh, Douglas constantly challenged received wisdom in whatever way that wisdom was presented. He went into the teeth of it. He specialized in finding possibility in blank spaces. I love that phrase. He takes democracy more seriously than his opponents did. He argued that mere non-aggression is not enough. We have an obligation to vindicate the rights of others. And facing evil and wrong, Frederick Douglass still finds an exceptionalism to which Americans can aspire. I found all of that thrilling and heartening here in hard times because a recurring theme today is that by finding new possibilities in Frederick Douglass, we find new possibilities in ourselves. That was my takeaway from today. Each talk returned to this theme of hope and possibility. 
and which is especially remarkable when we realize what it was that Douglas was confronting the, over and over again, the great sin of America, of slavery, and then its evolution into war, then its evolution into segregation, disfranchisement. And yet, faced with that, for decades, still tapped into reservoirs of hope and possibility. So I'd like to think that that's an example and an inspiration for us today. So in the spirit of sort of working against the grain that I think that Douglas did, David, uh, I'd like to ask you a question. The grounds on which Frederick Douglass might be critiqued are not clear from today. I didn't really hear anything that would be the beginning of a, a thoroughgoing criticism of him. And so I don't know what we do with a person for which no one seems to have a bad word now. Uh, so I don't know if there's a, what a critique of Frederick Douglass might look like. And so I thought I would throw that to you as an act of friendship and, and collegiality. But you have to unmute if you're gonna to reply to me. Sorry about that. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, thank you for that, Ed. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, first of all, to go right to cut to the chase, uh, he had a lot of blind spots about Native Americans. He played uh, into about every stereotype there was of American Indians, and it doesn't come out too often in his thought, but it's there, and I'm sure some of the other panelists know that. Um, he could also be very fond of some pretty ugly Irish jokes at times, <laughs> if you want to look for those. Um, I mean, on a personal level, and, and by the way, I understand this question so deeply because there's a tendency out there that, you know, when you, you know, when you write on Douglas now, especially with the public, he's just utterly admired. And I find myself sometimes just wanting to go the other way once in a while, and I'm actually, I will actually do that here once or twice. Um, uh, <laughs> but on a personal level, I mean, a biographical level, um, there's a lot of uh, material here. Uh, this man was uh, at times extraordinarily hypersensitive. When people threw mud at him, he threw it back often harder and worse than they threw it at him. He had a very difficult time making close friendships, especially with men. Uh, now that doesn't mean he didn't, he did. Uh, he had a very hard time trusting people, especially early in his life. That sounds, you know, like a lot of cycle babble in a way, but I do think there's a lot of evidence for that. Um, we didn't focus a great deal today on, for good reason here. I mean, this, th these were talks largely based in the realm of political philosophy and political theory and, and literary uh, criticism. And by the way, I loved all these talks. This is for me a dream come true. I've always wished there could be some kind of at least full day Douglas conference where 10 or 12 Douglas scholars just had at it. Got it. In fact, I joke with public audiences often that my real dream is to get about eight or 10 Douglas scholars in a room and we summon Douglas back. Well, it seemed to me that you did that today in many ways. Yeah, this is being recorded. This can be shared with a lot of people. So your dream can endure here. Well, but we're going to pin him down. <clears throat> we're going to we're going to you know get him riveted to a chair, lock the doors, and we're going <laughs> to really have at it. 
of course, for me, I'm going to start with all kinds of autobiographical questions. I want to know, you know, my first question is going to be something like, Mr. Douglas, Anna, discuss, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Right. But that, that's more of the biographical. Yeah. And we, that's not where we spent today, which is fine with me. And by the way, I want to say here quickly, I started out my career working on Douglas. Some of you know, was a, my dissertation was on Douglas, which I did back in the early 80s. Uh, and, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I just picked the three things I was interested in. Douglas is in the middle of it. But I do remember being told by my fellow classmates, whom I greatly admire, and many of them gone on to very interesting careers. But they said at the time, Douglas as a thinker? I mean, why would you do that? I mean, what, what intellectual agendas did he set? And so on and so on and so on. I had that burden from the beginning. I just didn't know any better. Um, but look where this has come. And this is dating me now. I mean, after decades and decades, Douglas is not only taken seriously as an intellectual, he is a world-class intellectual. And so much work now, especially, and I could, you know, if anyone could see my bookshelves, a lot of the books by these people are right there. I mean, I did almost nothing about Douglas's thinking in my biography without having Bukala and Myers right there next to me at all times, plus a lot of other works. Um, but uh, what came through here today to me, among other things, is just, uh, I think Nick called it his capaciousness, but it's his protean thought. We can't fit him into boxes. He can be very inconsistent at times, even though there are consistent strains uh, through this uh, at times, as, uh, as Neil pointed out. Um, but we look, at, we look for his consistency at, at our peril, I think. Um, the pragmatist, uh, Jim Oakes's point, um, that Douglas could be a principal, pra I guess I said that too, maybe I'm, I'm probably borrowing it from Jim originally. Um, and, and, and many other elements of this kind of uh, thinker who's never static, who's always in transition to something else, except that the one thread throughout here, as we saw, is the natural rights tradition, however we wish to define that. I wanted to say, too, uh, to your question, Ed, and then we can, we can move through these talks, uh, his darker side didn't necessarily come out as much as it might have here today. He does have a tendency, almost congenitally, to end on hope, even in the Dred Scott speech, or one might say, especially that Dred Scott speech, the idea that he can end that. He starts that speech saying, you know, I, I cannot see, I cannot see beyond the horizon. I, I do not see the, the hope someday of the, of the freedom of my people. And yet it still ends on hope. He ends the lynching speak, lessons of the hour, at the end of his life, on natural rights and hope, for God's sake. Um, but his darker side here, uh, and again, I don't want to appear too psychological, comes out in the war. Um, comes out in his war propaganda. Oh my God, you know, the vengeance that flows out of Douglas. He invented all kinds of stories about Southerners and Confederates uh, that he knew weren't true, but it was the fine art of war propaganda. He advocated the slaughter of every slaveholder in America uh, once he had a sanctioned war under, you know, under his feet. 
there is that darker Douglas, which I think clearly goes, at least I've always believed it goes back to his slave experience. He was unleashed by the war to wreak vengeance on not just slavery, but slaveholders. And, he, and it comes out of him again after the war. He's not exactly forgiving of ex-Confederates. Uh, he, he would have had some of them hanged uh, if you know, it had ever been up to him. So there, there is a darker Douglas here. And I think Lee Fought pointed us to some of this too. Um, in that fight he has with Stanton and Anthony over the 15th Amendment, uh, he had to control some darknesses there too, I think, when he was under attack in some pretty racist ways by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, he found ways to control it at times and other times not. Um, I wanted to say too that a great theme in these talks to me, it, it kept coming out, were when is, he, when is he just a strategist with these ideas and when are they belief? You know, sometimes it's a little bit of both, isn't it? That the anti-slavery interpretation of the Constitution. Uh, at first, when he makes that conversion, Jim and I might, you know, might discuss the fine points of this, but there are times he's just find, trying desperately to find a strategy. But with time, it becomes a set of beliefs. And I think that's true of a lot of other issues for Douglas. When is, when is it strategic and when is it actual conviction and belief? Um, uh, and also several people here, can, and that's probably inherent to the discussion of natural rights. Several people landed on this idea of soul. Douglas had this idea that, that at the core of our human nature is, is a soul, something we might call a soul, that humans are these creatures with souls, which leads me to just one other thought here you started with, and I'm amazed how much this word hope came up here today. It may reflect our historical moment, five weeks before this uh, quite incredible election that none of us thought we'd ever live to quite see, um, but my first chapter of my first book on Douglas, way to hell back in 1989, has this weird lumpy title, uh, Sources of Hope in the Pre-Civil War Thought of Frederick Douglass, because I, you know, again, I didn't know what I was doing with that book until I got six chapters into it. Um, but, um, I found all over the place in the 1850s, Douglass, to me, was just constantly trying to fashion some kind of hope in a future for black people some some vision you know some way whether that was through strategies of politics now or strategies of violence or you know uh, the constitution and and you know crawling out of garrisonianism was for him trying to fashion new forms of hope and my god hope against Look at those obstacles. I mean, what audacity to think you could still end slavery in America in 1857. I mean, or 1859. 59 is the first, I, I, he may have done it earlier, but I remember in 59, and he will use this again in the war a few times, he would go to that line out of Matthew. I walk by faith and not by sight. You know, I, I don't see where freedom's coming. 
but I have I have a faith in it. Um, you remember uh, coming to the University of Richmond to do that 1859 session in 2000. That's right. That's right. When, and, when we were doing the sesquicentennial. That's right. right. And the whole point was that nobody could see a way out of this in 18. No. It was a desperate year, wasn't it? And then John Brown's raid happens in, in the fall. And oh my God, you know, the, what's the future of the United States? Uh, dark, terribly dark. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I love these sessions because of all of these uh, paradoxical themes that kept, kept coming out. Um, so we can, we can take this anywhere you want to go. And by the way, Nick, thank you for bringing up the pirate ship metaphor. God, that I mean that uh, he he used he used the the pirate and piracy metaphor in bondage and freedom too. I think he 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 loved that one, and it it, it always worked, frankly. And 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 again, uh, Lucy, um, thank you for going for that question of exceptionalism and or patriotism. And sometimes I think with young people uh, and, and, and with public audiences, this is a bit of an issue about Douglas. I mean, how could this guy be so patriotic? Especially in the 1880s. How can he sustain faith in the Republican Party? Well, sometimes he had a hard time doing that by the 1880s. Um, but he was a radical patriot. And what my friend Don Shriver in a, his book calls an honest patriot. Um, and you know we have to be willing to say that, uh, and I think Melvin brought brought us to this question too in that quite brilliant comparison with Martin Delaney. And Delaney doesn't have to come across as you know not up to being a Douglas by making that comparison. They really did have fundamentally different visions of the future, and and you know and and different backgrounds. Uh, um, so, but you know, Douglas was both a ferocious dissenter, at times on the verge of being a, a true revolutionary and uh, a believer in this uh, mission. And, and frankly, oh, Peter, I, I mean, I could keep talking about various individual talks, but Peter, I loved your choice of the four speeches. Uh, I wish you'd had more time, especially with the second two. Uh, I, 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 would, I would love to debate with you whether the Freeman's Memorial speech is actually puzzling. I think it's brilliant in its, its two-part strategy of, on the one hand, being so dead honest about Lincoln as the, um, you know, at, well, as Black people being his stepchildren, an unforgettable metaphor. Uh, on the other hand, he pauses in the middle of that speech and then goes on to basically say, Freedom could only come by, by Lincoln's caution. I mean, admitting that after you've called him the white man's president uh, is, is, is amazing in the same speech. A speech that could have been just a throwaway, you know, occasion speech, celebrate and go home. Uh, I think it's his second greatest speech. Um, but anyway, I loved your choice of those speeches. And that's one thing I want, you know, if we ever have another one of these, I, It'd be a great parlor game for this group to just sit around and say, all right, what are the top four speeches and why, you know, uh, or the top three and why and which parts. But final thought here uh, till we get off of this. Almost everybody brought up today. Maybe, maybe we felt compelled to do that. Maybe it's the zeitgeist. 
Um, but it, this is what I learned from this, is so many ways in which Douglas is relevant to right now. You don't have to be so foolishly instrumental about it. You start talking about Douglas and it just is. You know, name the issue. And uh, it suddenly is about what we're experiencing. You know, if you think of the uh, other great thinker embroiled in these issues, these times, and people have invoked him today, Abraham Lincoln, mm. he used a quite different strategy of often of being able to live with these horrible choices through humor. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. noticed that humor is not in the index of your book. Uh, oh. And I'm wondering, does, does, which is like the cheapest book review <laughs> but I was just curious because, you know, how You're to, not there either, Ed, but you probably should be. There we go. Well, I, that was the subtext of my comment, but that's, uh, but uh, did he have, I mean, I, we know he was great at sarcasm. Right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, but how would he, did he ever resolve these things with some sense of the absurdity of the challenge of Yes. He did. No one's yet produced a book like all those little books on Lincoln, you know, Lincoln's sense of humor, Lincoln's stories and so on, but it could be done. I, I'm done writing about Douglas. I'm not going to do it. You're just but, giving away ideas here. It's great. Uh, well, somebody should go do it. It would, it would actually, <laughs> it might sell better than the rest of the things we do. Anyway. Uh, yes. For example, uh, there are many examples and some of these are in the book. Uh, when he encountered, when he would be Jim Crowed, Denied a meal in a in a tavern or a restaurant, uh, thrown off a train. Now, early in his life, he did not respond well with humor. He fought often, uh, and he he tried to just embarrass who was ever doing it to him. But as time went on, he processed, as African Americans have so often learned, they have to do this uh, this misery with humor. Example: He was denied a meal in a restaurant tavern, I don't know, somewhere in the 1870s, in the Midwest, probably, on one of his endless winter tours. And the proprietor says, sir, I cannot sit you in the, in the main dining room. You must eat in the kitchen. And Douglas just started bellowing out in front of, according to his version of the story, anyway, he just started bellowing out in front of all the guests in the restaurant, where do you feed your dogs? Take me where you feed your dogs. I'll eat with your dogs. I'm not going to eat in your kitchen. And pretty soon he's got the, everybody in the restaurant is on his side. And they're all saying, oh, no, no, no. Let this man eat with us. Let this man eat with us. And so on and so on. Plus, as a performer, part of his performative ability, which and, uh, people long ago wrote about Douglas's performative uh, abilities and capacities, especially literary scholars. But early on, even when he was in his 20s, that slaveholder's sermon speech, uh, which was his uh, stock and trade as a Garrisonian, oh God, he would go into mimicry of slaveholding preachers. He'd go into Southern accents. Sometimes, uh, by the late 40s and into the 50s. He was still mimicking John C. Calhoun by name into the late 1850s. He would use Calhoun and he'd go into this routine that was John C. Calhoun and he'd have people laughing, weeping, and shouting. So uh, 
on the personal side, the humor also sometimes comes out in, uh, in letters he wrote his, his children. Um, it comes out in a kind of fatherly way at times. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I could cite lots of examples. No, that, that's all great. I mean, I, I, the, the performative aspects of it all, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it, it's interesting that faced with uh, these enormous challenges, I think we're still puzzled about how Lincoln could even ever think of, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. but it was a way he would actually kind of get through these Gordian knots in some ways. Yeah. So since I'm the voice of the people here, since we don't have a big public audience, let me ask you the kind of question that <laughs> people might ask uh, of somebody who, has, who knew Douglas so well. And as you commented before, we do find ourselves in perilous times. Can you imagine what kind of advice he might give us now? What kind of comment he might <laughs> offer? Uh no, but I will try. <laughs> um, thank you for that question. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Person, people, yes. To people, <laughs> Mr. Everyman, yes. Um, well, sure. I mean, <laughs> he would be frightened, wouldn't he, uh, for this thing called democracy. Uh, he would say, what so many of us are saying, that our institutions are in trouble. Their structures desperately need reform. We have undemocratic institutions in our democracy. You know, the Electoral College was, was an issue even in the 19th century, but never like it is now. Um, you know, we've had so many unelected presidents. Uh, that's one of the reasons. Um, but he'd also, I think, be telling us to look back and keep a long view. On the other hand, he'd also be, uh, He'd be drawing on Isaiah and Jeremiah to chasten us to stand up and fight, stand up and you know, stand up and call power into question, uh, which is essentially what he lived for. It's what he did, um, and, the, and and this is, in fact, you give you give me a chance here to, I I just trotted out like two passages here that I thought, if you know, if we're if we're thinking about the present, yeah. Douglas had this ability at times to just, to just, this was the Jeremiah in him, to just warn people. And this is why I ended up calling him prophetic. He's giving the a speech at, the, it's 1869. It's at the last gathering of the American Anti-Slavery Society. They always held their conventions, annual conventions in New York City. He's at the last one. And in, in, in the speech, he's warning we should not be disbanding this. He was, you know, there was a big debate over whether to disband it or not. Garrison wanted to disband. Anyway, he said, don't disband it. But he said at one point, um, never forget, he said, quote, slavery is not honestly dead. I'm quoting him. It did not die honestly. Had slavery's death come of moral conviction instead of political and military necessity, had it come in obedience to the enlightenment of the American people, had it come at the call of the humanity of the slaveholder, slavery might be looked upon as dead. Now, you know, as, as we're always looking for you know, answers to that question, and young people are now, how can racism endure so much the way it does, just over and over and over? And, and right now we face young people 
who, who are ready to tell us, no, America's just inherently racist. It's always been inherently racist. Since 1619, it's been inherently racist. And, you know, we're always looking for <laughs> answers. You know, and as historians, we always say, and I'll, and I'll take a long view here, that history is, you know, never static, yada, yada, yada. Well, there's Douglas saying, look, slavery didn't die because Americans woke up one day and voted it out. They were voting all along. And they had voted for these Republicans in the North. And it has a lot to do with why Jim Oaks would want me to say this, why slavery was abolished, no question. But it hadn't died honestly, it died in massive bloodshed. Just start there to understand why racism keeps persisting. Um, and by the way, you started out, I wanted to say this and forgot initially, about how Douglas faced crisis after crisis after crisis after crisis. When you're doing biography, as a lot of people here know, there's some things you can never quite get about your subject. You just can't pin that down. But one thing, one, on my list of things I do know about him, in a crisis, he went to his desk. He didn't know what he thought until he went to write it down. All of the great speeches by Douglas even the antebellum speeches, exist in a text. After the war, we started getting them in TypeScript. They're texts, some of them 25 pages long. He wrote these speeches. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't break from them, you know, yeah. spontaneously, of course. Uh, he was a writer. And the pen on the paper on the desk is where he figured it out. Uh, one, I'll give you an example. Um, this was the, and this is the other quote I wanted to use. <laughs> um, and when he meets with Andrew Johnson at the White House, 1866, winter of 1866, uh, he gets this delegation of black men together, 12 of them, I think. Uh, his oldest son, Lewis, is part of that. They go and they meet with Johnson, and they have this terrible meeting with Andrew Johnson. Johnson just makes this racist speech to them. Uh, he, he says, you'll never have a future in the United States uh, and, and worse things. And Douglas tries to ask questions. Others try to interrupt. They can't get a word in as they're walking out. Uh, everybody overheard Andrew Johnson say, you know, that that N-word Douglas, uh, he's just like every other. No, that Douglas, he's just like every other N-word. He'll soon as, he'll cut your throat as soon as anything else. Douglas took this delegation back to a hotel and he sat down right that day and wrote up a manifesto about this event that was published the next day in a DC newspaper. And then he went to his desk, winter of 66, anticipating the big election campaign of that year and the off year elections of 66, which was so pivotal in reconstruction. And he wrote a speech called Sources of Danger to the Republic. I love this speech for two reasons. One, it's about a crisis of the Republic. We're living through a crisis of the Republic. And it's an example, first of all, of where Douglas sort of lost it. He was so worried. He was so scared of what might be happening here with Andrew Johnson's control of the presidency and thwarting, basically thwarting everything about black freedom. Nope, again, it's just 
winter of 66. Nobody knows where reconstruction is going yet. And in the speech, he goes so far, he, he, he really did lose it. He advocated three constitutional amendments. Some of you know this. Uh, one, he advocated that the president's veto be repealed because Johnson was vetoing everything in sight. Two, abolish the pardon power of the presidency. <laughs> and last but not least, abolish the vice presidency. Now, wait a minute, you think, uh, <laughs> you gotta have a vice president, uh, Mr. D. Uh, but, but he was so scared and so eager to somehow thwart Andrew Johnson that he advocated this, which is a bit crazy if you think about it. But then he went on to say, uh, quote, our government may at some time be in the hands of a bad man. When in the hands of a good man, it is all well enough. We ought to have our government so shaped that even when in the hands of a bad man, we will be safe. <laughs> so, you know, I don't remember the first time I read this speech. It was before Trump's presidency, but ever since Trump's presidency, every time I read this speech, bingo, you think. So on the one hand, he was so scared out of his wits, he was gonna amend the constitution in a lot of crazy ways. But on the other hand, he had it dead right. Is our structure of government protecting us from, you know, an autocrat? Maybe, maybe not. So, you know, when we think about how do we use Douglas in the present, how is he relevant to the present? Sometimes you just read a passage like that and you think, oh my God, he didn't know it, but he was anticipating what we're experiencing. But we remember the theme of today, which is that he found hope behind all of that. And he so did. we might as well too. <laughs> you know, it was both congenital and intellectual. And this is where these papers and talks were so important because we show where this, people here today showed brilliantly where this came from in his ideas, as well as his temperament. Um, and I learned a lot from all of this today. It really was quite amazing. Let's do it again sometime. Sounds great. And with that, we'll hand it back to you. Well, thank you, David, and, and thank you, Ed. It was a really good way to, uh, to end the day. Uh, I just think it's been an extraordinary um, day of ideas and discussion of oratory and history and biography of, of Douglas, and of course, as David pointed out, the relevance for today. Um, our hope here is that uh, we can take some of this material and thinking and, and relay it uh, back to our students and use it in, in our scholarship. And I'm, I'm confident that will be the case. And I'm confident that we haven't heard the last of, of Frederick Douglass, that's for sure. Uh, so I'm counting on you, David, to, to put that next conference together. Um, from the standpoint right. of uh, the university and, and of the Marshall Center, this is the kind of conference that we have gotten used to, pulling together uh, people from different disciplines and sharing ideas and thoughts um, and thinking anew about uh, a scholar and, and an extraordinary human being like Frederick Douglass. Um, but I'll, I'll just come back to what David said and, and from the standpoint of the, the university and, and the Jebson School and the Marshall Center, uh, when, when you uh, said, David, that this is a dream come true, I think that's, that's, uh, that says it all for us and we're deeply grateful 
that you feel that way. So I want to thank you all again and thank the, uh, those who participated and, and those in the audience. Um, and uh, we, we certainly hope to, to see you again. Thanks very much.